so yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit today about Videodrome, but not just Videodrome, but also about how that movie really foretells what media will do with culture and not necessarily only will do with culture, but with consciousness in general and how media is very, not just like very informative, but basically constructive of how humans relate to each other and the type of communities they really end up building. And so if you have to, for people who probably haven't seen Videodrome, because I kind of feel it's a little bit of a forgotten movie in that sense. Um, it's a classic. It's, definitely a, it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely a cult classic. Yeah, it's a cult classic. And I kind of feel still, if you ask people about it, they will know about it or they probably won't watch it or they'll have, they're familiar with some, I guess basic ideas from it, like dude watches a TV, gets fucked up by it. So it's kind of like that kind of uh, thing, but they probably won't have like dug too deep into it. But I do feel the movie has a lot of themes that are very relevant even today, especially today, maybe even more more relevant today than I think even for television, if you ask me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like the thing that's interesting that I've um, my, it's one that I've seen like a dozen times or more over the years that the thing that really stuck out to me on this like most recent viewing I had was that it's one that, you know, thought it was foretelling the future of television, but it kind of accidentally foretold the future of the Internet. I re That's really what I feel. And a lot of my friends who saw Video Drum, they really felt like this is more about what the Internet is doing. Just like TV could only dream about managing this level of um how would you say like nefariousness and intrusiveness as tv like right so it's more like yeah, even, even down to the even down to the small things like uh the point where brian oblivion is talking about how in the future everyone will have a screen name or right. a persona name yeah like there's a lot that that kind of accidentally foretold the internet i think which is interesting in that sense do, do you feel there was already in that era some tantalizing glimpse of the future where tv will be extremely personalized in the 80s or was that really just i don't know what, what do you think in, it is in what way do you mean like I, i'm sort of like thinking about it, uh, how there was this idea that cable television in particular um that you know you were eventually going to have so many channels that you could you know tune in one night and see live action snuff on some, you know, <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. on some far distant, like, you know, channel 3000 or some shit like that. Yeah. Slovenia. Like some, some <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some stuff yeah, from Slovenia. Like yeah. Yeah. But it seems like it, it, it ended up being more relevant, like in the world that we currently live in where you can watch ISIS beheading videos while you're having breakfast or everybody has a screen name that they use for, you know, reddit or any kind of social media account i remember it being very impressive back in the day when you could watch more when you just could browse all these i i'm using browse now but it wasn't browsing it was just like clicking your remote control um that you could watch all these channels it was like this was when the internet was still shitty i think the internet was really just beginning and i remember when i was like five or six years old and i was going through all these channels it felt really impressive, right? That you could see, yeah. you could shift to CNN and that you could go to some other uh, live, whatever it was from whatever country. It, like to have actual satellites 
was pretty impressive, right? So that was kind of the thing. And I kind of can see why Videodrome was born out of that era where you could have multiple channels with multiple information buzzing into your mind and kind of having this already a little bit, this whole idea of like having multiple channels beaming it all into your mind. But the internet, of course, does that much better in that sense. So because I feel, okay, even though having multiple channels on your TV is in a sense an information overload compared to having, I don't know, like having a bunch of books in your in your closet, right? So it's it's a lot more information overloading than movie is because at least movie was still... I don't know. It wasn't constantly airing. You have to go to the yeah, no, there, there's there's numerous things you can point to. Like, I mean, you could take any old program that was on that was on television at this time, like in the 1980s. I mean, it, whether we're talking about cable or whatever, I mean, you could take some old show like you know the Andy Griffith Show or Mash or I Love Lucy or whatever. I mean, you might like that show, but you didn't watch it while you were driving your car, like on your phone at a right. red light. You know, you didn't. Uh, pull it out at a business meeting and just start watching it or, you know, get in bed at night and pull the covers up over your head and drag a TV under there with you. I mean, the internet is so much more intrusive and so much capable of um, not just influencing the frame of social diswork, but um, what's the term I'm looking for? Uh, social discourse or societal discourse, but also of you know, if you wanted to use it as a mechanism for brainwashing or propaganda, it's it's so much uh, more capable of a vessel, I think. Also, because it offers the illusion, the Internet, that it's all free will, right? Where yeah. the rage that we always love to refer to the rage against the machine kit, right? Who hates right. TV because it's all centralized. But in a sense, it really was. And it was like beaming the information from a certain center to all the screens spread all over the nation, right? And mm -hmm. it was a lot more centralized. While this, the internet is extremely decentralized. It's a bunch of people who have, in the classic Michel Foucault sense, internalized an entire system of thinking and then starting their own little online project, uh, like a YouTube channel or a Substack or a Twitter page. And it all looks very much as if these are just like, grassroots right it's all like grassroots uh sensibilities in, in in all of this and people kind of feel not that this is all planned from some sort of center and then beamed out anymore a lot of it gives you the feeling that it's just done by a bunch of people from their homes right and, that, and, and in a lot of cases it actually is but that doesn't really mean that it's well, it definitely that that was definitely the case before the internet became so streamlined right um, as has as been, I mean, I don't, I don't know what year exactly that was, whether that was 2015 or uh, 2016 or so. That seems like when I really remember that being like the end of the old Internet and when really like you entered a point now where there's maybe five to ten websites that control everything. Yeah, that's really the case all now, traffic yeah. From them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, but it still wants to sell this illusion that it's like, done by you right like that's how zuckerberg sells it that's how the guys at twitter sells it and youtube and yeah. like that's why it's called youtube it's basically you being the tube basically yeah so yeah it's still it still wants to sell that but you're completely right there is no more 
wild west internet where everybody is basically having their little forum somewhere i mean to be really honest like like all these kids are so <laughs> like all these kids like install like tor and then they're so excited to explore the dark web and i'm kind of thinking like this was really just what the internet was before before yeah. like facebook and google all dominated it right so this was dark web i'm kind of like well this is really just how the internet was there was a risk of getting virus everywhere like people say like oh watch out for the internet because dangerous virus will like get into your computer and i'm kind of like well kids this is really just what the internet really was in a sense so like remember using LimeWire, yeah. remember that program? Oh yeah, that was just what I was about to say. That was like back in the old days when you give your hard drive AIDS just to download like an Eminem song. <laughs> that was like, and you could kind of tell sometimes, like, man, this this does look like a virus. <laughs> the way it's like described here, like, why is there like Russian in my fucking yeah. Eminem file? <laughs> yeah. So this doesn't make this doesn't make sense. So I'm gonna avoid. Like, I'm not gonna click this really. Uh, but yeah, that was really the internet back in the day. So people really talking about how you have like a dark web where you can ooh you can you have to like look it up yourself really. What this and that's kind of man that that's what it was in the beginning really. There's nothing that esoteric about it if you ask me. But uh, but yeah, the, the so the internet kind of now it's a. I think the big thing is the user friendliness now of the internet, where, as you said before, you, if you wanted to be on the internet, it was really like a TV with a typing board, like with a, with a, with, with yeah, with a keyboard, right? That, that was really what it is, yeah. the, the internet before. You had to sit in front of like an actual, I mean, it was the size of a TV screen, right? Like the old monitors, they were kind of like yeah. TV screens in front of you, close to your eyes. That was always like main mom concern, right? Like, don't sit too close to that thing because it's kind of like you're sitting close to a TV. So the moms were very worried about you sitting close to those monitors and basically using a keyboard to manage that giant TV in front of you, really. But uh, you have to be there. You have to be in the room to actually close with an actual internet connection. And that was always like a whole dialing up thing. And now people complain when there's like no wi-fi available when they're i don't yeah, know to me, to me that's the biggest social that's one of the biggest social shifts you've seen like in the last 20 years is if you notice nobody says things like you know brb uh, be right back or be back later or anything like that it's like everybody just lives on the internet now 24 7 like you carry it around in your pocket and at any time of day you have like 12 different you know, chat threads going at any one time or like arguments you're getting into to amuse yourself or no, nobody really leaves it. It's not like this thing you have to be in the room with. No, and that's why people will get like frustrated over the fact that, well, if you still even, it doesn't really matter if you say like be right back now, because even if, if it takes a long while for you to reply back, it kind of will like still be considered by some people as like, why did it take so long for you to reply back or they don't even care like you just said because i don't know maybe you'll reply an hour later anyway so right. yeah it's yeah like you say it really is now everybody is on there and it's like an extension of everything like if something happens socially and it doesn't have some sort of presence online it's almost like it didn't really happen i feel that's how yeah, people treat that it happens, anything that happens you hear about it within a few minutes 
Yeah, exactly. So, and a lot of people now even will do social activities just to have something to record. That's how far it has come really with a lot of people, especially like in Asia where people will plan like some fucking uh, get together or do a Korean barbecue or any of those things just to have pictures that Friday to post I online. What, I can't think of what the name for that is, but there's there's a phenomenon that's like been studied that is exactly what you're talking about. It's like sort of this this paradigm movement into how people used to do things for the personal enjoyment that came with it, that it was like an individual space. But now it's more about being able to take pictures of it and be, you know, appreciating get likes from, you know, your friends or coworkers for doing it. You know what I mean? Like how mm -hmm. you go to a concert or to a, you know, music venue or anything like that. And everyone has phones out recording and nobody's really in the moment. Which I mean, it, it, this is, seems to be like a thing that is always happening to humans, right? Like for example, you go out, you meet a friend. It's really to have fun with that friend. It's not, oh man, I sure hope we'll get some good sh shots of this of yeah. this get together. But that's kind of what people hope for nowadays. That the, if this isn't Instagrammable, this was kind of like a failure, or this was kind of like oh whatever. So, in a sense, if it's not recordable, if it doesn't really have some sort of a footprint online it didn't really happen or it's not it wasn't really worth it and that's really something that humans do i feel with a lot of things like for example money right like what's the purpose of money well the purpose of money is to use it as a tool for exchange right like i give you 500 and i want you to give me i don't know like a nice ipad or, so, or like a cheap ipad or whatever and yeah. so and now people will just earn the 500 to have the 500 like they don't necessarily will use it to consume a thing. They just want to see that number go up. And I kind of feel like this is kind of like what we always do. We, we always seem to forget these things were used for another purpose, but people confuse it now for that thing, which is very odd that humans consistently do this with everything. Money is used as an exchange tool. Well, okay, but now I'm just going to earn money. Uh, it's kind of like, dude, you, 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 you really do realize that this is something that you should use for a thing, right? And not just like- well, Let me ask you this. Do you, th do you think this is part of like a greater generational shift? Because this was something I was thinking about the other day. I mean, like the way I remember it when I was young, the thing that kids wanted to do was like to disappear. You know what I mean? Like to go off with <laughs> your friends, uh, you know, whether it was skateboarding or getting into trouble or doing shit, seeing how long you could like not call your parents uh, you know, getting away for the whole weekend, things like that, like disappearing. Now it seems like kids want to be found. Like kids are wanting to, um, you know, see how much they can be noticed by as many people as possible. Well, that's definitely the TikTok generation. Huh? Like do us, even your dumb little dance needs to be noticed. And I'm yeah. not like a real boomer right now by saying that, but come on, like there's something really objectively wrong with that where if an online presence is that crucial to everything then we are really losing our humanity to some sort of i don't know like we we lose it to media really that's basically it like we are losing crucial parts of what it means to be human to something that wants to see a digital reproduction of it 
And the whole world then becomes about creating digital reproductions, no matter how fake or real it really was, which is actually really messed up. And that's pretty much, I feel, what isn't that really what Videodrome then is about? Like how you're completely being consumed by the tool and you live for the tool? Isn't, isn't that really what was at the center of that movie? There's, there's a lot going on in Videodrome that's hard to condense, but I think that's one of them. Um, you know, a, another theme that I, I've noticed that's something that hasn't really come true until recently, so in a lot of ways it, it foretold it a lot, uh, maybe indirectly, is that there's, I'm trying to think of a really good way to articulate or say this, but that when you have a system where corporations control the government, which is what we have in America and have in the West, corporate-run media really isn't that much different from state-run media and propaganda, if you know what I mean. Like, right. it, it, it fulfills the exact same role. And I think you also had, like, this real... Uh, there's a boomer aspect to the film going to it that maybe hasn't aged that well about, um, you know, when, when he discovers... When James Woods's character discovers the truth about Videodrome, it was this, you know... Uh, when the guy gives him the big moment of revelation that North America is growing soft and weak and the rest of the world is getting you know, tough <laughs> and we're going to have to become, we're going to yeah. have to become pure, uh, pure at heart and, you know, strong willed to be able to survive it. Uh, that That's something that just comes across to me as like really boomerish and like Cold War. Oh, yeah. Uh, era. You know, th this fear that like uh, when, when Reagan came and took over that uh, all the normies were going to lead a genocide against um all the rage against the machine kids mm -hmm. uh, but no i mean i think it's about a lot of things but yeah that's that, that's absolutely one of them yeah that was such a boomer message in video drew i remember that the whole thing like we need to toughen up america by watching snuff <laughs> otherwise <laughs> otherwise the soviets those hardened russian boys will just have us for dinner and i'm kind of like well, okay. <laughs> if that's really well, the message he the message he was getting with that was that uh, the video drone signal that gave you brain cancer was attached to that. So what it was going to do was when they sent it out live over airways, like the people who were meant to live on and like lead, you know the mm, you know the yeah, the good yeah. Christian war against like the you know the the Soviet bloc were going to be the people who didn't watch that shit because it's for de degenerates. And that the degenerates who watch Videodrome are all going to die off. So it's like, you know, oh, the, the Reagan, you know, yuppie normies are going to, you know, kill off anyone with an alternative viewpoint who likes, you know, uh, weird media. Like, it is this very uh, boomerish, like, aging, you know, uh, 60s dude vibe. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's true. That's true. Yeah, that, that's kind of the, the main... Well, I wouldn't say the main message of it, because as you say, there's like a lot of messages in it, but that was definitely one of the messages that I noticed watching it. And but so the thing is, though, like what is the movie really, I mean, known for is like how flesh, the body and the medium are melting into one another. Right. And where like James Wood at one point is, I he think he's like a stomach pussy. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't he also grow a gun or isn't like yeah. his yeah like and it also like or it doesn't melt with the gun or he actually grows a gun is that what he, he's pl he's playing with a gun uh while yeah. he's watching tv and uh he like fingers his stomach pussy with it and it gets stuck <laughs> in it 
And then it comes out later, like at a convenient point when he's going to go do a hit. Man, I still laugh my ass off every time that uh, when he plays the tape and the dude is addressing him and he gets yeah. like choked to death. And like, yeah. I am Videodrome's first victim. Uh, that, that's, I don't know, that's... <laughs> yeah. I, I still think about that scene and that's just... I, I love I love those cra- the, nowadays they would consider that cringe right like the zoomers if they see that shit they would say whoa this is cringe <laughs> but yeah. I honestly love those 80s 70s 90s moments of like ooh do you see how dark it's getting I, I really miss those those days really That's, oh uh, yeah I, and and while you're on that subject like another thing you you have to talk about with Videodrome is the special effects and how good they still look. To this day, there's something. Well, there's something about '80s films. I think that you know, you, you hear this take that I think has been regurgitated for so long that people really, I, I'm not sure who all still believes it. But when people talk about the 1980s, they say it looks corny. That mm-hmm. you know, th- there's this idea that the way people dressed in the 1980s was corny, and that the way things looked were just you know, cringe and like they were a timeout from uh you know you know anything that had any kind of good taste or demeanor to it but to me personally like when i watch 80s films i think they ha- they look classic personally like especially the special effects there was something there was shit they were doing like in horror and sci-fi with practical effects at the time that had just aged really well that still look good to this day like the the period that really looks the worst to me out of all of them is the 90s like I think movies made between 1993 and probably like 2004 or so are just about unwatchable now because, you know, the practical effects and like the handmade uh, special effects shit they were using back in the 1980s look great. And once they figured out CGI in the early 2000s, it looked good. But there was a period Mm -hmm. when they had like abandoned practical effects and before they had figured out CGI when they were still doing, you know, computer driven shit that just looks unwatchable now. Yeah, because they were working with, I mean, let's be honest, with shitty computers trying to do what we now do with CGI, but the technology at the time wasn't really ready for it yet. So it it looks very amateur. It kind of reminds me of like those like stop frame things they used to do, right? With with Godzilla. Yeah. And then Godzilla kind of moves like a or it wasn't really like Godzilla, but I think there was a few. But like when you have like these ain't like dinosaurs, like like walking a little bit around like they're made out of wood and so yeah. it kind of reminds me of that like those 90s effects they use it it doesn't it doesn't look convincing really it uh, it looks rather shitty but yeah so like what you say about the but what you say about the 80s is really true i do feel those special effects they've aged very well like for example i watched um you know there are two the things right there's like the carpenters his the thing yeah. And then there's like yeah. the 2011. 2011, yeah. Yeah, it kind of wants to be like a prequel to the thing. And I watched both of them recently. And I really felt that, man, the thing of Carpenter is a lot more scarier than this CGI stuff from the two, 2010s, really, they were making. It's a lot. No, more, for sure. Um, yeah, it's I, a lot crazy, scarier. Yeah, like another one from that era is I took uh, my kids to go see Blade Runner, the original uh, from 82 um, at the theater. Back here uh, one day last week when they were doing a throwback uh, showing of it, and that was the big thing I took from it. I'd never seen it on the big screen before, but I was going, damn, this still looks great to this day. And all the sets were done with, like, miniatures 
and you know that stuff looks great and then the stuff now like Blade Runner 2049 looks great but the thing I was thinking about it on the way home was I was going you know there was like a 20 year period where like it would look like shit if they made it right yeah that's definitely true yeah I cannot imagine them doing this in the 90s really it would have looked Oh man, it would look like what how, how low budget movies now use digital techniques, right? So yeah. like, oh by the way, have you ever seen one of those new movies? Uh, Bai Ling is in. You know Bai Ling? It's kind of like that Chinese actress who was uh, I have not playing the crow. Like she was playing in the crow. Um, oh, yeah, I remember her. Yeah, and she now plays in a lot of like these uh, B tier, C tier movies now. Like that's her avenue of a movie she plays in and it's like all these very like low budget shitty uh local movies that use basically i don't know like cheap software to to get the same special effects through and it kind of does look like what you would get in the 90s right so yeah that's kind of like what i imagine now if they had made a blade runner movie in i don't know like 1994 it would have definitely looked pretty shitty i feel like i think the crow the crow is one i haven't thought about in years yeah Um, yeah 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 God, the last time I watched that, I was so underwhelmed. I was like watching Brandon Lee's uh, fight sequence and I was going, damn, you did not genetically inherit any of your father's fighting ability. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very, I don't know, man. It's been, a, it's been a while that I watched that too. I think I cannot even remember it when I watched that. So, but yeah, she was definitely in it. And now her thing is like shitty b movies now but she still looks surprisingly good for being 50 fucking five or something like that i think she is does she mostly do stuff in china now no 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 it's all american now it's all american she's now kind of known as like uh what's it called like biling queen or something like that like the she's kind of considered like the new wait what's it here let's see The B movie queen, she's called. Okay. Yeah. So she's in a no, lot I'm of those kind of movies. I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar. I'll, I'll have to look into that. Well, she's 55, but damn, she doesn't look 55 at all. Well, that's kind of like the whole thing with non-white people, right? Like black don't crack, and I don't know what they say about <laughs> Asians, but <laughs> so yeah. I don't know, like uh, with whites, it's hit and miss, right? With us, so some yeah. some age well, and some yeah, you don't want to you don't want to see aged. So well, that, that's what they always say about uh, Russians and Slavic women that they're like the hottest in the world at a young age, but once yeah. they hit about, once they hit about thirty and start wearing like babushka head coverings, yeah, then, they, then it's all downhill from there, right? It's extremely downhill yeah. from there. <laughs> yeah, they age the worst of any. Well, don't blacks say that we age like milk? I think that's kind of like what they say about us. So uh, that might be true. <laughs> well, I do think it's also probably, I don't know, maybe we just don't really. Asians do take care of themselves a lot. That's very true. Like, like you will not see an Asian chick go to sleep without a face mask, but white chicks will not necessarily do that. So there is definitely some truth to that. That's Asians, they do take care of their skin a lot more than, say, white people will do. So, yeah, that's I think that's kind of legit true. 
but I don't know about blacks necessarily. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not. I'm not the absolute best authority. My wife's a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, but that's the thing. So we we really don't have like any of those. I don't know. Like I feel like in in Western culture, there's this whole thing where I look good. You have to accept me the way I am, kind of thing. Where, yeah. and if you don't accept me, like whatever, you're losing out. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, kind of logic fun. right yeah, yeah yeah you're losing out even though i i aged like like a milk carton so i mean and in asia there's probably this whole thing like i need to look good because i just need to look good that's what people expect me to do right so that probably yeah. that's maybe why there's like the stereotype of us not really aging that well but whatever like the whole point was basically that she still looks good for 55 which is kind of amazing for a 55 year old to still look like she's 30 fucking five it's, it's pretty impressive but well but it, yes. also does, it also doesn't help that like covid has you know made the world go into sweatpants mode where everybody's yeah. just like, sitting around all day and not wearing makeup or anything like that yeah that too that definitely hasn't helped either so but yeah uh so the main point, like, I don't know how I ended up, like, talking about B-movies. About I know it was about special effects, right? Like, yeah. we were talking about, like, how... Well, when, I, when I was watching the thing, I felt like, man, this is actually pretty fucking scary and, like, disgusting looking. Actually disgusting looking because they tried and make um, the thing, like, the new thing look disgusting and it did look disgusting i felt because i could kind of feel this was not really disgusting while the thing actually from the 80s was using probably was there was probably nothing digital about any of those things right so it actually felt tangible it felt like i could touch it and feel the sliminess of it in a sense so that made it disgusting i feel so Yeah, so in a sense, you're completely right that those 80 special effects, they really used actual material, did a lot of camera technique, did a lot of probably like close-ups and all sorts of things to make it feel real, but it worked. It made it feel tangible. And that is how I feel those special effects still hold in a sense, because you can feel them in a sense. You can you can reach out and you could probably like touch this the weird building in Blade Runner really because I, I do feel like I, I think I saw how they did those shots over the city and it's actually like really an actual thing they built from scratch really and then do like flyovers uh it, it, you probably could fit it in a room but it was definitely like made to look impressive so yeah well That's- the thing with video the thing with video drone was there was a special feature I was watching on the Criterion Collection uh, released Blu-ray of it that was this little like 30 minute documentary all about the making of the special effects for it. And it talks about how they did it. And it was really interesting, like to, to see in kind of a throwback, like the scene at the end where, you know, he's hiding in the, uh, the boat in the Harbor and the TV appears with, you know, uh, Debbie Harry on it. And that explodes, uh, you know, after she says he has to kill himself. And when the TV explodes, they say what was inside the TV was, uh, was sheep intestines, like real sheep intestines from like a farm or slaughterhouse close by and condoms filled with like blood. And wow. that's what explodes out of the TV at the end. Or do you remember like the part where they're at the, um, what the hell is the guy's name? Uh, Barry Convex, the one who has like the, uh, uh, that owns the eyeglasses company. When James Woods goes on stage 
uh, at his show and shoots him to death. You know, the one where he takes the microphone and says, uh, death to video drone, long live the new flesh. Yeah. When it mm-hmm. goes that guy's uh, body decomposing and like, you know, him twitching and his head sort of coming apart that what was inside that was like General So's chicken. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> that they, they would go like to, to absurd lengths, like to, you know, think outside the box and make the special effects look good. And I, there's just something about that that's way more, um, way more tangible and like interesting than just, you know, blue screen. You know what I'm saying? That's exactly it. I think you can feel it. It's not about, oh, it looks, it looks almost like his stomach is blowing up. So I believe it. No, I really feel there is something probably, I don't know, is it subconscious or not, but that you can feel this is a real thing I'm seeing here. This is not just some digital reproduction or an, uh, an, an or whatever it is of what is meant to look real. I don't think CGI or anything else digital can ever really make you feel you're looking at the real thing. Even if yeah. the polygons are all there, I don't believe you can feel it. I think there's something that we are just aware of the fact that this is real. Like um, there's so many examples of like dudes, like say, whoa, man, look at the, the graphics on this game almost looks real. And I'm kind of like, no, you can still, you can still tell. This is not real skin. These are not real eyes. These are not, uh, this is not hair, especially hair. You can kind of tell immediately in video games that this is not how hair moves really. That this is something they haven't still gotten down to even though they're having like ps5 or something coming now or what is whatever the fuck it is so yeah, i think it's something you're always going to be able to tell honestly like always there's, there's, always there's just some things that you can't get around it's exactly and even though it looks epic on screen there's something about i don't know texture that you cannot ever reproduce perfectly with with a with a blue screen you cannot just do it you cannot do it with with uh with photoshop it just doesn't work like something especially maybe for a picture maybe maybe a picture can kind of like mislead you but as soon as it's a movie which is basically a sequence of move thousands of moving pictures right you will see it you will feel it that yeah, there's this is something that's always going to get lost in the mix exactly yeah the texture has to be right and i feel like you you're right the 80s they really got special effects down with textures actual textures and i think that's why those horror movies back then feel actually disgusting because like you say they were really using actual blood actual meat actual things right blowing up in 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 the cameras in the camera's lens so yeah this is not this is not something of a reproduction this is real things actually flying at you especially like Yodorovsky his movies right where like I think he's like blowing up frogs at one point in Holy Mountain, yeah, those were real fucking frogs. There was a like, if you had to do it back then, you had to actually blow something up, actual meat, in order to give that feeling of this is meat flying all over the place, really. So you couldn't just reproduce that with, I don't know, with 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 cardboard or something like that. It was not going to work. No, it's, so. it's one of the, it's one of those things that they're, they're never going to be able to do again because of all the all like the the laws and enactments they have about animal cruelty. Exactly. Which I'm not going to like comment much on. It's always been a little funny to me when, you know, people will say I can watch, you know, a film that's uh, that's snuff or, you know, where it's uh, people being, you know, murdered by a serial killer, like no problem. But the second you have like a dog die, like I I freak out, like that's just always seemed so American to me. But like that's the way you used to literally film shit like there was a. 
the movie from 1980 called uh, Heaven's Gate that was like one of the biggest budget uh, Westerns ever made. It's also like the biggest uh, flop in motion picture history. I mean, it's it's a really interesting story like to look into sometime like for another time and another day. But there's a scene in the script that called for a horse being blown up during a war scene. So the way they did it was they actually blew up a horse. And that's sort of what I'm talking about. There's just shit that movies can't get away with now. No, no, no. So I feel this is something we can never get back to. And it's probably something we have to appreciate in those movies. And yeah, it seems like a once in a, in a history event or something like that, that we really need to appreciate. It's kind of like how, I mean, this is a whole other topic, but it's kind of related to creativity in a sense. I really don't think we will have new religions of the kind that emerged during the Bronze Age, right? Like most of those religions that are now still having such a hold on the human mind, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, maybe an exception of Islam, which isn't really Bronze Age, that's already like well beyond the Bronze Iron Age. So, but in any case, like that time period, then the real world religions were born. And I think it will be very hard to create something new like a religion that will have such a sway as those do i don't know there's something about it back then that really captured the feeling of both being ancient but also being universal because you had to deal with like universal empires then like christianity the roman empire hinduism uh, the mario empire taoism the chinese empire so it was kind of universal it was meant for all of humanity it used the medium of text really well, uh, even though people were not extremely literate then. And it has the, if, the feeling of being really ancient, like almost primordial. And I don't think you can really do that with modern times, even though you have like stuff like Crowley with Talima, uh, L. Ron Hubbard with Scientology, a whole bunch of other cults trying to start new world religions and it doesn't really seem to work i feel it doesn't no it, it, it no it's not something that's conducive to uh to a, to a culture where everyone's plugged in it's, no it's really not. And, and and people are too critical now to really immediately like devalue all these things so you kind of need to deal with something ancient that's far removed to even hold a grasp on people's mind right like to hold that mystery of well this was written in like a the around the beginning years of uh of our of our chronology so there must be some truth to this or there must be something <laughs> worth exploring here and yeah so history well, what it is makes me think of is there was this whole there was this thing i was reading earlier there was like a an argument that was raging online of this meme that was about how uh what's something that's in the bible uh, or not in the bible that you wouldn't expect and you know, uh, someone had made the answer white people and this was you know, like a like a meme that had taken off, which is actually true. But the thing that I remember thinking and laughing about was going, this is why there won't be any like new religions like this, because that's what the discourse would really be centered around. It's, right. you know, pe- people picking out like, you know, petty aspects of it to debate to death. Yeah. And this is something that I wanted to get into about talking about Videodrome. And you really explained it well about how it was actually a movie meant for the to explain more the internet than it actually explained the TV. And what it is doing to us is a lot more, what, what, the, what the internet is doing to us is a lot more 
what Videodrome is talking about than what the TV ever could. But it really is about media in that sense and how media is really not just controlling our mind, but probably controlling our flesh. And in a sense, I, I think it doesn't really mean that we will transform into, I don't know, like our TV will suddenly start having an orgasm or something like yeah. that, like in that in that movie. But what I really think it, it what it really means is that it changes the social body, literally, right? So all the way our bodies relate to each other, how we socially built, like how we build connections, how we even make love, like how we date, how we uh, interact with each other. That's very bodily and media has a big effect on that. And so in a sense, that's really the new flesh in a way, like the new social body. And what I was thinking about, so I was reading earlier this week, uh, a book, a very short book by uh, Peter Sloterdijk is a German philosopher. And he wrote in the nineties also a little bit about media. And he had a lot of interesting ideas that I felt made me think then about Videodrome because he has this whole idea that in the beginning of history, we didn't really have media as a human species. So we didn't really have text. Text had to still be invented. So community was in a sense also determined by media, even though there was a lack of media, but the only media that we have were our vocal cords, right? And our body, in a sense, expressing itself. So the only community we could ever build up was a community of people immediately within our sight, right? Like in our within our view. So if you had a community, it was really always like limited to the amount of people that could see you. So that could never really be thousands upon thousands, perhaps a few hundreds, right? Like a tribe. So our vocal cords, our behavior, like our body language determined how big our community could be. But that changes as soon as you get the introduction of new media and writing basically changed the game, uh, Slaughter Dyke says, because writing could, for the first time in human existence, uh, transport messages across maybe not vast spaces, but at least like very large distances. And so then you see the emergence of kingdoms and empires really with writing. And so in a sense, it is media more than just agriculture or any of those, or any of those inventions that really determine the extent of how big our communities could get really. And so it is really because of that, that you start to have like something like a kingdom, an empire, because writing could make that possible. Writing could, for, for the first time in, in human existence, connect such disparate human communities, what you couldn't do with a voice before. Like you actually couldn't really make people feel involved in a thing because it was too far away. That guy with his, who was talking across the other end of whatever river valley it was. Well, I didn't see that guy, so I don't really care. But with writing, at least now you could get people very personally and emotionally involved where before you couldn't really do that. And so he sees like more and more how communities and media are really like one and the same. And I would definitely agree with that. Like, this is really what I feel like uh, nationalism up until recently, because maybe we are now seeing maybe kind of like the detros of nationalism in that sense, even though people feel it's much alive, but I kind of feel it's very reactionary, which it kind of is in a sense. So um, because until recently, nationalism was really all about 
having the people involved, but to have the people involved, you need like a literacy rate, right? So I feel what you had until for the last 500 years, ever since Martin Luther, is people reading texts in a sense. Like you, you wanted to have people reading the Bible. That kind of was like the whole Protestant uh, thing, right? Like now we have print. In a sense, people kind of say that Protestantism triggered was triggered by print. And I kind of think there's something to be said about that, that yeah. all of a sudden, yeah, all of a sudden more and more people started to read the text for themselves. And they were like, well, well why am I listening to this guy uh, in the pulpit explaining this to me? Like, I can read this too. And so it triggered Protestantism and subsequently it triggered nationalism because I feel like uh, it started to translate the text into local languages which before were important but not that important because as you know like latin could easily like was the intelligentsia their language so local language as well yeah i kind of use my local language outside of my uh outside of my church out of my theology class but that's not what i'm going to read stuff into necessarily it doesn't need to be my local language i can just read this book in latin that's just fine for me but then local languages became important and i think then what Sloterdijk argues is then you see the birth of nations, which before didn't exist. Like uh, ask anybody in France uh, at, in the Middle Ages if they, def if they see themselves as French and what it means to be French. And probably these people would have looked at you very weird because they would have imagined themselves to be French necessarily. They would have imagined them as subjects of the French king. So because language back then was much more of a disunified thing like people like this is why europe has so many dialects like even here still in belgium like a guy in brussels his dialect if you send him to the west of belgium like he'll have a hard time understanding that dude and they're like only like an hour drive away so dialects pretty much show that this whole idea of a unified language group means they are a nation is really just a thing that is only becoming real in the 1700s, 1800s, really. And before that, it was very much more nebulous, this nation thing. But so what Sloterdijk is basically arguing is that media determine communities. And the more media manages to connect faster groups, the more it is able to pull those groups into larger units, in a sense. So it's, it's a, what he really saw with the emergence of the internet is like, well, there is definitely potential here for globalism but don't expect this thing to really lead to a global community anytime soon even though it is putting the idea into our minds and into our social spaces just as much as the nation was not a thing since luther but it definitely started to already play with that idea so so yeah that's kind of like why i felt like uh the whole thing with um with video drum like all hail the new flesh was kind of like remind like when i read that about slaughter like i was kind of like reminded by that phrase like all like like what was it again like all hail long the live the new flesh long live the new flesh right so i felt like well yeah that's kind of like what slaughter like is talking about like we are seeing the emergence of probably like a new social body but it's gonna take a while like we're, we're probably not gonna see it in our lifetime because print didn't lead to the emergence of nations immediately, but it definitely helped lead to the emergence of nations, right? So, well, it's something that you could say like anywhere. 
I know you used Belgium as an example, but like anywhere you have a large number of people, like say in the United States, for example, where you have so many different regions and not only dialects, but, um, you know, traditional groups and characteristics of things that a big part of the reason why you could go from one state to one, like four or five states away is because of the media's impact and ability to influence the way people act and talk and that how everyone's sort of coming at it from this common uh, like influence. You know what I'm saying by that? Mm -hmm. Like um, that basically like, you know, we live in a world where everyone watches the same shit, everybody consumes the same shit. And so that's going to do a lot for when you have diverse groups of people and their ability to relate to one another that right. otherwise wouldn't be there. Yeah, because I feel like celebrity news, the whole, I mean, the whole slap of Will Smith went around the world. So yeah. it's not just like, oh, uh, Russia is just catching on with what happened with Will, Will Smith like a few months later. No, it was just as instantly news over there as it was in Europe, as it was in South Africa, as it was in Brazil. So it's the human, the whole human experience now is getting a lot more uh, homogenized in that sense. Like a lot of the big topics, a lot of the, yeah, anything really is becoming a lot more a common experiential space. And so English is the main medium to accomplish that now, but uh, oh yeah, subtitles really like make it regardless of that, even more easier to make it experienced over regardless of language differences. But yeah, what no, you're seeing now, yeah. Yeah, uh, pre-mass pre media, I think, like, something that is really hard to explain to younger generations is that if, you, you know, years ago, if some shit happened 50 miles away, you just didn't know about it. Like, it didn't involve your life or anybody you knew in any way. I mean, right. unless something was massive and had some kind of huge, you know, ramifications for everybody, like, uh, like a 9-11 or uh you know jfk being shot or some shit like that but i mean if some guy was uh killed by police 50 miles away you probably didn't even hear about it like probably not no yeah because it didn't involve you but mm -hmm. one thing that the media does it's sort of how i've always interpreted like the you know the the concept of the new flesh being not just the physical body but society in general and kind of like an overlap of both is that what the media does is it collapses your sense of scale. You know, it, it, so it makes you believe that like, you know, one person's problem is like everybody's problem because it deals in sensationalism. Um, like, you know, we can hone in on places where there's active war going on in the world like Ukraine or Syria and have 24 hour footage of all this. And if you didn't know better, you would believe that like the world is the most violent place it's ever been. Even though statistics will tell you that's really not the truth at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. But that, that's, that's sort of what I'm getting at is like, that's what news and media really does is it collapses your sense of scale and your ability to really, you know, comprehend your surroundings in any kind of realistic way. And another thing that I got out of that book was that he says that especially what you're talking about now here about like this bad news uh, making you believe that the world is a dangerous place or it's a lot more chaotic while it actually isn't because it's just that you see all the accumulated events of the day which are all very panicky and it <laughs> and you get it all served and in the end 
most of the shit that happened was pretty uneventful. Uh, but in the end, like what he really says here, and I kind of think it's true, is that with how the media works and how it has always kind of worked is to create a sense of panic, of stress. So what he says is stress kind of creates community as much as happy events do. And I do think that's true. So in a sense, this whole global community thing that is now forming with the new media in a sense, like it has to have a lot of stress events to keep that social body together in a sense. So it's not necessarily like, oh, bad news sells. Well, it kind of does. Uh, and that's probably one of the main reasons why we see a lot of like um, headliney stuff, which makes us all panic. But in a sense, it's also functional. It's not just, oh, it makes, it, it leads to a profit, but apparently it also leads to community. It's kind of like the fear of things that we all, all of it, we watch all the, the very fearful thing online. Now we feel all connected because you felt it was scary. I felt it was scary. So we all now feel very much connected, right? So in a sense, this is probably a part of it that's not really like managed from a boardroom. But yeah, I think it's, yeah, uh, that's what I was just about to say. It, it's a side effect. Yes. It's like you a can say it's a, side positive effect, yeah. or, it's a positive or a, a negative side effect. But because ultimately it's sort of what I was talking about, about corporate media, that at the end of the day, these are these are financial entities that mm -hmm. deal in money. And yeah. if shit wasn't getting clicks and it wasn't tapping into that natural human urge to, uh, you know, to feel paranoid and to get whipped into a frenzy, it wouldn't sell like they would do something else is, right. is the fun thing. Like, um, go, go on. What were you about to say? Uh, oh, no, I was just about to say something about the whole thing where I just wonder if it will be really possible, but it probably will take a while. So the whole promise of globalism, right? Like the whole idea of like, we'll soon all be one world and the media are leading towards this uh, because as we say, right, like a guy in Indonesia is as much part of current events, right, as somebody in Norway is, which is sometimes very strange, man. Like sometimes when I watch like stuff on Instagram and I'm seeing people I know from all over the world and they're all giving their own take on things happening. And it kind of feels surreal to kind of feel like, well, it's kind of strange to see someone from Southeast Asia have like the exact same experiences as I do <laughs> like it's or at least like having the same likes and dislikes as I do it kind of feels weird in that sense yeah it's it's sort of a so, like a end of, an end of history moment it does feel like that and I kind of feel I don't know what to feel about that should I be happy about this that we are all finally all into this together or should I be worried that everything is kind of like disappearing but then again I mean is that really how we should look at it? It's not really like a constant history because a lot of people will feel like, oh, it's so sad that all these languages are disappearing, right? Like you hear that a lot too, right? Like, I mean, I think like every day, like a language disappears or something like that or something of that sort. And I mean, in a sense that's sad, but this seems to be a constant in history where I'm pretty sure there was a lot of like tribal Celtic languages being spoken in France, right? And 
they were all gone too. Like now it's just, now it's just goddamn French speaking over there. So there, there, are, def there are definitely people in charge uh, who who run the world from a from a financial standpoint who see globalism as being ultimately the most profitable because it creates that basically you know when you have people who are on the board of Marvel and Disney who you know rub elbows and run in the same circles as people who control politics then. Yeah, globalism makes a lot of sense because if you can make everybody in the world, you know, some, you know, pleb tier motherfucker who wants to line up to see the new Marvel movie, then you're going to make a lot of money from it. Yeah. And, and that, it, extends, that, that extends to everything. Yeah. And now you want guys in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I just don't know if it's a, a sustainable model. That's what I'm wondering. So it's always about like I can follow Slaughter Dyke when he says like, yeah, you can see how we go from voice medium which allows only for like small hunter-gatherer communities and then with writing we are able to at least bridge distances and create realms of kingdoms and empires and then we have uh something like uh digital media allowing now for the for even vaster communities now we have transcended the nation now we can really have like an actual world community experiencing this or at least tantalizing glimpses of a world community. I'm not really sure if that will be the result of it because maybe there's more going on than just media connects us, right? Like maybe other things also need to be taken into account and we'll put something, of a, something within those wheels that will stop it, right? Because I don't think as much as a guy in Thailand, is looking at the same things as I do. I don't know how we will ever become one world community out of that. I, I that there seems to be a lot more things that needs to be that need to be taken care of for that to be established, right? Well, so something I would say also is that if you use American media as an example, I don't see how it could. I mean, considering that this would be like you know the the headquarters uh, of of whatever you want to call this project. Um, or, or at least the ground zero for it. Um, I don't see how it could give anybody any hopes of like world unity. Especially, you know I mean? yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, like, I mean, the, the thing I've noticed for a long time that I think we've talked about before is that the real like underlying, I don't, I'm not sure if it's the underlying objective or if it's just what you see come up as the common theme over and over again in, in American media is trying to collapse your sense of scale and make you believe that 10% of the population is actually 80%, that 10% being progressives. Right. Um, you know, what, what you might just call like the most, <clears throat> the most comical idea someone would have of like a college campus, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders voting uh, liberal, that that's not really, that in reality, that's 10% of the population, but there's a vested interest on all sides of the media of making you believe that's actually 80%. And like from the mainstream or like, I'm not even gonna use the term left-wing media, but from the mainstream media perspective, this is done through, um, you know, shaming or uh, trying to, you know, joke at someone or make humor out of the fact that like you're unhip if you're not buying a product or supporting a cause that's like the the current in vogue calls of like uh, the cosmopolitan like Bay Area or inner city New York crowd. And on 
the right wing perspective, it's done in the exact same way, but it's done through fear and paranoia of making you believe that this 10% crowd has actually like hijacked all of government institutions and has overtaken the country and that now they're going to like, you know, chemically castrate or like rape your children. Right, right, right. So I kind of feel like what, what you're telling me now is kind of like it's managed from the United States and with all its things going on, like internally. And I'm just thinking, isn't it already like changing a little bit? Like, because the internet is, it, it's difficult to make estimations about what the internet will mean a century from now, right? Because it's only been, I don't know, the internet is really not that old, to be honest. It's only like, I think right. like 30 years old or something like that. It's only like 30 years. I feel that it's really going on. And as we said, like before that, it was at least a decade, a decade and a half of it. You had to be on a computer to really be on the internet. And it wasn't really this ubiquitous uh, Wi-Fi thing where, anywhere you are like on top of a building or I don't know, like, like in a national park, you still have some like a uh, reception. So you can still like upload something like that. That wasn't really a thing up until very, very recently. So this level of globalism before was mostly a globalism of goods, maybe of books, but then you at least had to do an effort to read books or take a personal interest in it. And so globalism was happening. Yeah. When did you begin seeing the internet like uh, on a, like home personal level in Europe. I, it seems like I remember it here coming around for the first time in the mid nineties, like around 1995, 96 is when I really remember it. As far as people having it like in their home and every house having internet connection. Mm. Well, I, I kind of feel like it definitely was already here late nineties, but yeah, I, I think it was pretty, it wasn't like that uncommon to have like an internet connection, but it was still like something I remember in the early, like mid nineties, late nineties, it was kind of like, well, don't be on the internet too long. Like you've been on it for like three hours. <laughs> that yeah. was like the thing, like this shit cost money. You know, it's kind of like making a long phone call back in the day. Like Jesus yeah, so Christ. Tie, tie up the phone lines. <laughs> yeah, it did. And so it was kind of like, damn, are you on the internet? Like for four hours? Like, are you, are you saying like the, the bill, what the bill's going to be like? So, but now nobody fucking cares how long you're on the internet. Yeah. So that was the main, I think, obstacle for people to be on the internet. It was like, kind of like, well, this should cost a lot of money to be on. So, and, but now like who cares? Right. So it's kind of, you, you have your unlimited pack already. Like when you're at home, you know, what the standard amount of money for it is so yeah but i think that what they they say when something is free it's because you're the product yeah and i kind of feel like we are definitely being more product than ever before which is kind of like i've you can kind of see the dehumanization go crazy in many ways i feel like i do feel like people are becoming less and less of a person to themselves and to others because of this i feel so you are becoming the product, right? And you're acting like a product online too. Like you want to be sellable, profitable, have status, right? So it's kind of, the dehumanization is really pushing itself through in many aspects of people's life. And they're dehumanizing themselves for whatever personal gain they might get out of it really, right? So it's, yeah, it's, it's scary stuff. And I'm just thinking, on the other hand, like to think about globalism again is kind of this whole idea of like, well, yeah, the internet, it's like too early to tell 
how far it's going to go. But as you mentioned before, geopolitical shifts are also need to be taken into account, right? It's not just like, oh, we all have internet and we all accept that internet is let out of, I don't know, like the Bay Area. <laughs> and we, we just all take it uh, from the, now the United States just like broadcasts the internet and we all just accept whatever is coming out of uh, the United States. And right. the whole world community now will be informed out of the Bay Area. I really don't think that's what's <laughs> happening because what you no, see is- yeah, like what you see is like, okay, we have the internet, it has the potential to be world spanning, but technically writing had the potentials for that too, right? And you didn't really see writing inform giant empires where everybody was conforming to whatever some dude was writing. There were many uh, people picking up writing, but creating many different communities out of it, right? And I kind of feel like the internet is doing that now too. Probably it will be bigger communities than what we've seen before with writing. But the thing is that I kind of noticed that with, with, with internet now is that the geopolitical shifts are happening, especially right after the 90s, especially after the Cold War. And what we're seeing now with current events is kind of like new Cold Wars emerging, right? Like many Cold Wars, which is even more worrisome, not just with Russia, but also with China. And so what you're seeing now is more and more the internet, again, regionalizing, I feel. So China already has an intranet, right? So I've been there. Uh, it's If you don't have a VPN, you're not going to be able to go on any Western websites of worthy of note, right? You're not going to see YouTube. You're not going to see Facebook. You're not going to see news websites like the BBC uh, in, in China, it's inaccessible. But there's a wealth of internet to go there. Like if you know Chinese and you're on Chinese internet, I mean, it's pretty amazing. They have like everything they need to be, to feel like their internet is as inexhaustible as ours, but it's Chinese. And apparently the Russians are kind of like doing similar things. Like you have Russian chat apps, you have like the Russian Facebook uh, equivalent. Um, so it seems to me that the internet, this that the internet, this promise of a global community, thanks to the internet, it seems to get more and more dated by the year, really. And especially as more and more conflicts emerge between all these different, well, let's not just call them empires, but all these different big powers in the world, right? So well, this, is, this is the way this is the way I sort of look at it. and this is going to be a little bit of a long winded example. But if, you know, one question I always remember having when I was when I was younger, and this is an indirect way of answering it is why is it that America has such an interest in spreading democracy around the world? Like, you know, it, it kind of goes against the conventional model you would expect of just taking over and, and instead of saying, okay, you pay taxes to America now, there's this interest in saying, okay, we're going to go to some far flung corner of the world and set up democracy so that people ha can have a right to vote. And it seems so historically strange because oftentimes you're talking about people who throughout their entire, the span of their civilization, they've demonstrated that they want to rule and lead a government by either, um, you know, the philosophy of uh, communism or by the Koran or by some, you know, Eastern philosophical or religious teaching or so something along those lines that democracy is not something that's normally hardwired into their, you know, uh, historical pattern for how they've governed. And it's, 
the natural question that sort of comes from it is you go, well, if America's going in to overthrow um, to overthrow this government and set up a democracy, why wouldn't the same one pop back up over again? And the answer that you sort of end up coming to realize is that the reason America has such a vested interest in spreading democracy is because wherever democracy goes, Western corporations and media go along with it as a package deal. And what comes with those is the ability to change and alter the way people think on a generational line and essentially like, like tame them, you know, to put it in like corporate Western phrasing or parlance that that's the way that the crowd in, you know, DC and who runs the the military industrial complex really view this stuff. And when you get into a situation like that, it's you're not far flung from viewing it of how you know you can easily set up like a scenario where New York or LA essentially becomes the capital of the world because with the media's ability to change and alter the way people think and to broadcast propaganda you can change hegemony that way and that's sort of like what I'm getting to is like a long-winded example is like yes it's easy to think of the internet as being a tool for people to um you know not be um what would be the word i'm looking for like sort of like what you were talking about at the beginning that it's all just a collection of individuals that this isn't just like people being led from a boardroom but where it gives me pause and curiosity is that when you look at the media model in places like America or Israel or like the sphere of, you know, what we'll, we'll just call like the sphere of like Anglo Western interest. I don't see how, you know, a person could come to the idea that we're going to see anything positive come from this because the pattern that you see over and over again is like sowing division and like stirring up bullshit and making people fight when you really look at what American media is. Well, you're, you're right, because I feel even if you look at a country like, say, Saudi Arabia, which is technically a U.S. ally, it's still not 100% a safeguard of U.S. interest as much as it has when it would become a democracy, right? Because the Saudis, they have their Wahhabi culture there, and I'm 100% sure they're very restrictive on things, right? Like censoring a lot of stuff that would normally air within a democracy, right? So I kind of feel that... In a sense, there is still an incentive for democracy to be pushed in many of those places because it would serve a certain class of people, right? But that's kind of like what Lenin also says, right? Like Lenin says that basically uh, democracy is just like bourgeois parliamentarism. And I mean, yes, can you I really agree. argue with it? <laughs> can you really no, you, argue you, with you it? You yeah. can't argue with it at all. It's absolutely true. Yeah, so in a sense, I mean, it is a certain class, their way of managing power, right? Because if you're a bourgeois society, you there's no bourgeois strong enough to control the other one. So you kind of need to deal with it in a Republican slash Democratic fashion, right? Where you kind of play like a 
a game of chairs <laughs> where you just like kind of decide, well, well okay, oh, I guess like uh, the song stopped playing. I didn't get any chairs. So I guess you're sitting on the chairs for, <laughs> for this round. So yeah, well, I kind that's of- sort of the fall- That's sort of the fallacy of all like American, you know, military, um, you know, expeditions since World War II is that when they go around the world trying to export democracy, like there might be a place where a dictator or some, you know, uh, or, or some cleric is propped up and then they go, okay, now we're going to overthrow this system and install democracy. And wow, what's this a year later, that system's right back in power. That, right. that, that, that it almost seems like this, this fallacy that comes from thinking that really what everyone in the world wants is to be like a, is to create their society in like a mimicry of, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area. It's just, it's just true. I mean, but the thing is also, did you notice also, this is what I'm thinking about now, that during the Cold War, the Western powers were a lot more satisfied having like a friendly dictator in Africa or South America than they would now, right? Like say we have a friendly dictator, I don't know, uh in the middle east or in africa we wouldn't be so satisfied with it anymore because we really want it to become more democratic while before we were already happy that we had like an anti-soviet guy somewhere right so it's a it's a lot more like you will see a lot more criticism against like having a friendly country somewhere where we would be like well it's good that it's friendly to the west or something but at least we want it to become democratic right that's kind of like the thing you feel nowadays that it's not enough that we just have like an anti whatever china or russia guys somewhere we want it to be democratic like for example with ukraine right like uh we are happy that ukraine doesn't support uh putin like belarus does but we at least want ukraine to become like a typical western european style democracy with no extreme right wing militias or that kind of shit right so so in that sense it's it's not enough anymore that we have just an ally. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a very like modern European way of thinking. It's sort of the same way that Europe, I think, has dealt with the with the refugee crisis and large immigration numbers is that when there's people in charge in Europe who the way they understand it, when they view people who are coming from, you know, out of sub-Saharan Africa or the Middle East who have um you know, a culture that could be seen on the outside as being incompatible with uh, how Europe has traditionally, you know, modeled itself socially, they can go, okay, well, we're just going to do it this way on a generational level where, you know, yeah, it's going to be hard to assimilate the parents, but the kids, you know, we can just throw a shitload of Marvel movies in their face, stuff their, uh, you know, face with Big Macs, teach them, you know, liberalism in schools, and that's how it'll be done. You know, it's it's sort of like, that. that's how I think you conquer, like, through democracy in, in the European understanding. 